Opera in Russia during the 20th century managed to produce and inspire many composers that are still performed today, such as Prokofiev, Klabinov, and Shostakovich. Find out more about these composers and the conditions that inspired them to create opera on today's episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. Join us for a spectacular event honoring three magnificent artists. Janet Baker, Cecilia Bartoli, and Lawrence Brownlee will be celebrated at the virtual presentation of the 2021 Opera News Awards on Sunday, April 18th at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Our three honorees will be saluted with appearances by Stephanie Blythe, Joyce DiDonato, Renee Fleming, Thomas Hampson, and Ramon Vargas, and with special musical performances by Aaron Morley and Luca Pizzaroni. Tickets start at $50 and are available for purchase at www.metgill.org awards or by phone at 212-769-7009. We can't wait to celebrate with you. The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. The Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is funded in part by support from the Stuart J. Pierce Memorial Fund. To learn more, visit metguild.org. Opera, like all art, is frequently a reflection of the current political and social climate, and operas during the Soviet era were no exception. In spite of the oppressive environment, a generation of persecuted composers like Prokofiev, Shostakovich, and others managed to be incredibly prolific. I'm your host, Stuart Holt, and on today's episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast, my co-host, Dr. Naomi Baratera, discusses the development and creation of opera at this time in history. Leo Tolstoy's War and Peace is one of the greatest works of 19th century Russian literature, a classic beloved by many and a literary tome unlike any other, mixing philosophical discussions with a narrative that spans a huge cast of characters, all rooted in a very specific, true-to-life historical time period, the French invasion of Russia during the Napoleonic era. The era in which this work is set, circa 1805, and the era of the Soviet Union are separated by over 100 years. But yet, this novel, turned into an opera by acclaimed Russian composer Sergei Prokofiev in the 1940s, would become a well-studied work in music history as the ultimate example of an era defined by political control over the arts, and the utilization or manipulation of opera as an art form to achieve the goals of socialist realism. Opera, both then and now, has the power to be exciting, overwhelming, influential, and carry messages to its audiences whether they are aware of an intent behind it or not. And as Prokofiev scholar Nathan Sinan once described, to be exciting and heroic in operatic terms, according to Stalin's directives, all elements of the art form would need to be harnessed, 
the persuasive powers of music, and impressive visual effects were to enhance the text in compelling ways that would shape an audience's response. War and Peace, the opera, is a staple of the repertoire, even if it is not performed with the same frequency as other canonic works, mostly due to the immense performance forces that it requires. Upon first hearing, you might not realize that the version of the opera most commonly performed today was a result of a long compositional gestation. Literally years of revisions and changes formulated multiple versions of the work, due to the timing of the work's original conception overlapping with a period of intense political change in Russia, a time in which politics and the arts were becoming inextricably linked. So what is the historical context surrounding this opera? What do we know about Prokofiev, his musical style, and the compositional process behind the work? What was the nature and extent of the revisions that it endured, and what political forces were at work that influenced the final version? What was the final musical result of all of these changes? These are the themes we will explore in this episode as we continue our exploration of opera in the Soviet era by turning our focus to Prokofiev and War and Peace. First, let's trace a quick historical recap of events that bring us to the interwar period and the establishment of the Soviet Union in Russia. We know that Russia's entrance into World War I began in 1914 as they joined forces with their French, British, and Serbian allies against the Germans. Overall, World War I was devastating for the Russians. They suffered extreme losses greater than any of their allies or any nation in any previous war. While Tsar Nicholas was away fighting at the front, an advisor to the Tsar's wife named Grigory Rasputin held strong influence over political decisions made on the home front, and slowly gained control over the royal Romanov family. He was murdered in 1916, but by that time, government corruption was rampant, people had lost faith in the Romanov family, and the economy was in complete shambles. The population was starving, and civil unrest led to what was called the February Revolution in 1917. Tsar Nicholas ended up abdicating the throne, and a new government was formed. But the food shortages and economic effects of Russia's involvement in World War I did not improve with the new government, leading to the Bolshevik Revolution later that year. This resulted in Vladimir Lenin establishing himself as the leader of a communist state, which led to civil war. The Civil War lasted from about 1917 to 1923, when Lenin's Red Army emerged victorious and established the Soviet Union. Following World War II, boundaries defining control zones for the Allied powers that prevailed in Europe were redrawn via the Warsaw Pact, and a political boundary was established that expanded the influence and control of the Soviet Union in several additional countries, and this political boundary eventually became known metaphorically as the Iron Curtain, as the Soviet Union, or by that time also known as the USSR, the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, eventually attempted to blockade itself in the countries it controlled from the rest of Western Europe. While the term Iron Curtain is a metaphor, rooted in a theatrical term, actually, referring to the fire curtains that were used to prevent any onstage fires from spreading to the rest of a theater, it did end up being a series of physical barriers with militarized surveillance, as is most strongly represented by the Berlin Wall. 
the tension between the Soviet Union and the rest of Western European countries escalated in the post-World War II years, leading to the Cold War, which generally dominated political relationships between the USSR and the West, most notably with the United States, from about 1947 to around 1989. Following a series of protests and uprisings across multiple countries within the USSR that opposed the Marxist-Leninist communist regime, the Soviet Union was officially dissolved in 1991. So where does Prokofiev fall in this historical timeline, and where does War and Peace fit into things? Sergei Prokofiev was born in 1891 into a fairly privileged family. He had private musical training from the time he was quite young and began composing before the age of 13, which is when he entered the St. Petersburg Conservatory and began his formal training. He apparently composed his first opera at the age of 10, a children's show called The Giant, which had some kind of public performance but was met with a lukewarm reception. At 27, he composed a work called The Gambler, and he also began experimenting in the realm of ballet. His style at the time was drawn heavily from other Russian composers, such as the romantic works of Mussorgsky and the contemporary works of Stravinsky. So much so that his first attempt at a ballet was seen to be quite derivative of Stravinsky's The Rite of Spring but still somehow managed to make a splash when he recycled the music after an unsuccessful premiere in ballet form into a symphonic suite. In addition to composing, Prokofiev was known to be an incredible pianist, and he used his talent to help push his works forward, performing virtuosic self-composed piano works that inspired awe in the audience. His first and second piano concertos are quintessential examples of this, and apparently, the cadenza of his second piano concerto was so difficult that for quite some time, hardly any of his contemporaries could actually play it. He left Russia after the revolution to pursue a musical career in the West, traveling to Japan, the US, and Paris. He spent two decades away from Russia, performing and composing his own works, and he sought out commissions everywhere he went. This led to the composition of the opera For the Love of Three Oranges in 1921 for a company in Chicago, as well as a few ballets for the Ballet Russe in Paris. And throughout this time, his style was incredibly modern, as he was exposed to all the latest trends sweeping across the Western world at the time. As it got more and more difficult for Prokofiev to find commissions, he began spending parts of the year in Russia, performing and seeking commissions there. He had a major success with his ballet Romeo and Juliet in 1935, a work that was generally considered the greatest ballet to be composed since Tchaikovsky's Sleeping Beauty. You might recognize this section from it, the famous Dance of the Knights. This gradual, partial move back to Russia eventually became permanent. But more on that in a moment. 
first, let's zero in a little bit on this time period and get some context for how music interacted with the political situation in Russia at this time. In the 19th century, there was an idea that some scholars and philosophers held to that music was an art that could be created, exist, and admired for its own sake. It didn't necessarily have to have extra musical meaning associated with it or ties to any specific social or cultural ideology or political agenda. Not everyone subscribed to this idea, and there are many ways that music was linked with politics in the Romantic period. Verdi's coded messages in opera supporting Italian unification being just one example. But there was the thought, however naive it might seem to some, that music could exist outside of politics. In the 20th century, especially in the period between the world wars, musical culture became much more closely aligned with politics and all the major Western world powers of the time developed slightly differently in terms of government involvement in the arts. World War I certainly threw Europe into turmoil, and the period immediately afterward was a time of rebuilding cultural institutions and activities for many countries. Many countries focused on using music as a form of nationalism, codifying an identity and promoting a sense of national pride following the ravages of war. In the Soviet Union, all aspects of the performing arts became intrinsically tied with government ideology and control, and was used as a tool to popularize specific political ideas and encourage or support certain social reforms. In the early 1920s, there was a strong interest in modernist music across Europe and in Russia, and cultural exchange with Western Europe was common in musical circles. More modern techniques such as serialism, atonal music, expressionist music, experimental music, and merging of jazz idioms into high art music, and the exposure to works from foreign composers were all quite common in Russia. But then, following World War II in 1934, the Soviet government began to push for what they called socialist realism, which profoundly affected all aspects of the arts, since the arts were seen as a powerful tool for popularizing certain ideas and both controlling and shaping a cultural narrative. Socialist realism is best defined as a style that focused on realism and essentially promoted communist values, presenting aspects of life in the Soviet Union under the Marxist-Leninist regime in a very idealized fashion, celebrating the proletariat and encouraging a, quote, party-mindedness was a key part of the aesthetic. And there were eight main ways in which socialist realism was used as a mechanism of control in the arts, specifically music. First, the arts provided a way to indoctrinate the populace into Marxist-Leninist ideology. Second, the arts were used to try and enhance people's patriotism. Third, the arts could honor and glorify Soviet leaders. Fourth, musical institutions became nationalized. Five, concert programming and repertories were strictly regulated. So, for example, musical works were often submitted to a committee for approval before having a public premiere. Six, a single institution or union of composers was established and controlled by the government. All competing or alternate societies or unions were abolished. It was called the Union of Soviet Composers, or the USC. 
The government dictated the style and aesthetic of the music, and much of the modern trends that dominated Western Europe were rejected as not compatible with the goals of socialist realism. Seven, the goal of the USC was to promote socialism in a positive light and celebrate ideologies of the socialist revolution. And eight, finally, the whole idea was to promote the concept of socialist realism and codify the hallmarks of the style. So how did all this specifically manifest itself in music? Well, for starters, as I mentioned, modernist trends in music were largely rejected. Emphasis was put on composing works that featured consonant harmonies, rarely indulged in excessive dissonance, and had a first impression of being rooted in an accessible style. Melody was considered extremely important, so having a prominent melody really dominated the musical textures. And if a melody had a folk-like feeling to it, even better. While dissonance in anything too, quote, formalist was shunned and condemned, like serialism or atonal harmonies, modal harmonies and alternative scales drawn from folk tradition were quite common and encouraged because they were believed to have an authentically Russian sound to them. Use of choral singing or choral textures within a work were also believed to be a compositional technique in line with socialist realism, as it metaphorically represented a communist ideal, large groups of people uniting in a common goal. This choral singing was often in unison or monophonic in texture. When looking at works with a dramatic or staged element, like an opera, it was also very important that the source material for the story or subject matter be patriotic, or at least inspirational in a patriotic way. As we already discussed, Prokofiev was a very modern composer in this time, often described as a radical modernist with a broad exposure to Western musical trends. Because of the significant amount of time he spent outside of the Soviet Union, his output is actually quite varied and spans a wide range of styles, compositional techniques, and forms. To give you a sense of this range of styles that he composed in, here are some highlights from his output before he permanently returned to Russia. First, Piano Concerto No. 2 in G minor, Opus 16. This work is considered an exemplar of his highly avant-garde style. He composed this shortly after graduating from the St. Petersburg Conservatory in 1913, so this places it before World War I and before the rise of socialist realism in Russia. It was quite successful and immediately put him on the map of modernist composers, even though one critic likened it to a cat walking on a roof.
1921, he composed the opera For the Love of Three Oranges. This is a work that Prokofiev wrote during his time in the United States, and it was premiered in Chicago. It was a satire with a French libretto based on an Italian source material. Although this work was not an immediate hit, one critic actually described it as Russian jazz with Bolshevik trimmings, it did slowly gain staying power in the operatic repertoire, and it is regularly performed today. A fun fact, there was a production from 1988 designed by Richard Jones, I believe at New York City Opera, that included scratch and sniff cards for the audience so they could pair certain smells with the action on stage. Here is one very famous excerpt from the opera, a march that Prokofiev self-quoted in other works and has been featured in television and movie soundtracks. As another example of Prokofiev's work before returning to Russia, the opera The Fiery Angel is one of the most dissonant and challenging scores Prokofiev ever composed. Its creative process was a struggle, as it progressed through fits and starts, and the composer had a difficult time getting it staged. The plot is pretty crazy and very tragic, featuring a young woman named Renata that is in love with an angel who promises to one day appear to her in human form. Renata ends up joining a convent, but the nuns fear she is possessed by a demon, and the opera ends with her being burned at the stake. So, super dark subject matter, paired with a score that has confounded and confused many listeners and certainly did not conform in any way to the ideals of socialist realism. Here is a small excerpt to give you a sense of what it sounded like. After working on The Fiery Angel, Prokofiev, who was still living and working outside of Russia at the time, got a commission from the Soviet government in 1933 to compose a film score. He was hesitant to accept the offer at first, as he had never written a film score, but this was an opportunity to gain a foothold with Soviet audiences, so he ended up accepting it. This led to a very successful score for the film Lieutenant Kija, released in 1933. The Soviet government was quite pleased with Prokofiev's work on the film and offered him more commissions, which led to the ballet Romeo and Juliet in 1935. 
These commissions also led to the beloved symphonic narrative Peter and the Wolf in 1936. This was one of my favorite classical works as a child, and for many of you listening, it may be one of those pieces of music that you know or recognize, even if you don't know that you know it. By the time Prokofiev composed Peter and the Wolf, he had actually moved back to Russia, bringing his wife and two children with him. With the intent of frequently traveling between Russia and Western Europe and America to keep a foothold in all possible musical markets. He even had offers from Hollywood film studios, offering the chance to return to film music. He instead took another commission from the Soviet government to write a film score for Alexander Nevsky. This film was a huge success and timing-wise aligned with the rise of socialist realism, and Prokofiev's music for it was considered a perfect example of the socialist realist ideal. Here is a chorus moment from the film score titled Arise, E Russian People Arise. It has a very folk-like style to it, lots of unison singing, or at most two-part harmony, the melodies and harmonies are very diatonic or consonant with only the occasional dissonance. There's also a little bit of modal scale influence, linking it to a stereotypical Russian folk sound, and the sentiment of the text, calling for the people to arise and unite, directly links to the goals and ideas of socialist realism. So the film score was a success. However, the timing of the project also overlapped with the so-called Year of Terror, or Great Purge, a time of political repression under Stalin, and a push for government control of the arts. Prokofiev's success with Alexander Nevsky did not bring him any special treatment or freedom. When he had returned to Russia to work on this project, his passport was confiscated, and despite the success of the film, never returned to him 
which meant that from this point onward, he never left Russia again. But he did continue to get commissions, so his career was certainly not cut short, but his life circumstances had changed, and he was, from that point onward, torn between composing in a style that fulfilled his own artistic ideals and composing works that pleased the government. He suffered from quite a bit of stress and anxiety, and was known to go through long stretches where he found it difficult to compose at all. But throughout this, he turned out many great works, including several piano sonatas, symphonies, and operas, some of which pleased the government, and some of which did not. Among these works was the opera War and Peace, composed between 1941 and 1952. And this is a work that stands as an extreme example of a composer striving to realize his own ideas about opera and what operatic composition should be, while also forced to revise and change things in order to please government censorship enough that the work would actually get performed. In the initial compositional process, a heavy-handed government review led to a series of changes from Prokofiev's original plans. Then, the opera never really got a full world premiere. Initially, the opera was broken into two parts. Part one had a premiere in 1946, and the second part of the opera made it all the way to a final dress rehearsal in Leningrad in 1947, but then the public performance was abruptly cancelled, with no explanation given. Prokofiev continued to tinker with the work, but a complete performance did not happen until after the composer's death in 1955, and this performance was not even in Russia, but in Florence, Italy, and there were some scenes that were omitted. With so many revisions made in the compositional process, it's difficult to piece together what Prokofiev's true or original intentions for a final version might have been. It had its Russian premiere in 1956, but again with certain select scenes cut or omitted, and it wasn't until 1959 that a complete version of any kind was performed. This complete final version contains 13 scenes and an epigraph, and when compared to the very first complete draft of the opera that Prokofiev composed way back in the 1940s, the final version is significantly longer, with many changes evidence of the government's many interventions. The opera is based on the Tolstoy novel of the same name, and the story was originally published serially in multiple parts, plus a two-part epilogue. It was then published as a complete work for the first time in 1869, and altogether contains over 500 characters. To give you a very brief and truncated summary, the story begins in 1805 in Russia, coinciding with Napoleon's conquest of Europe. One of the very first scenes features a party where the reader is introduced to several important characters and families. Pierre, who is the illegitimate son of a wealthy count, is good friends with Andrei Bolkonsky, who comes from an aristocratic family with military ties. Generally speaking, there are two aristocratic families that are most important to follow, the Rostovs and the Bolkonskys. We meet siblings Natasha and Nikolai Rostov, and it turns out that Nikolai and Andre both join the military and are sent to the front lines, both serving under General Kutuzov. While Andre and Nikolai are away at war, Pierre inherits his father's fortune and marries a beautiful woman that he hardly knows, a marriage that is doomed to fail. The two eventually part ways, and Pierre becomes a Freemason for a short period of time, 
While meanwhile, Andre is wounded and missing in action, but then when he returns home, he finds that his wife died in childbirth and his infant son is now being raised by his wife's sister, Mary. Nikolai, who has also returned home, ends up racking up some gambling debt, and this puts the whole Rostov family in a pretty bad economic situation. Andre falls in love with Natasha, Nikolai's sister, but their families do not want them to get married right away. While waiting for family approval, Natasha is unfaithful and falls for a man named Anatole, which devastates Andre, and he leaves her. Natasha and Anatole attempt to elope, but the plan fails, and Anatole is sent away. Having lost both prospects of marriage, Natasha is devastated and seeks comfort from Pierre. When Napoleon invades Russia, André returns to the military and Pierre becomes convinced that he must find a way to personally assassinate Napoleon. In the meantime, Mary, the sister of André's first wife, who had been looking after André's son, reconnects with Nikolai. Pierre is captured and imprisoned, cutting short his personal quest to assassinate Napoleon, but when he is finally released from prison, he is a changed man from all the horrors that he has witnessed. He reconnects with Natasha, the two fall in love, and marry. Nikolai marries Andre's sister, and peace is restored. And of course, throughout all of this, there are numerous battles, military subplots, political machinations, and other secondary characters that move in and out of the story in a complex web of action rooted in historical events and relationships that are tried and tested. Like I said, this is a very truncated plot synopsis, and the opera truncates the dramatic action even further. The libretto for the opera was created by Russian poet Mira Mendelssohn, who, perhaps not so coincidentally, would become Prokofiev's second wife. They first met in 1938, and by 1939, Prokofiev's first wife, Lena, became suspicious that there was an extramarital affair happening. The timeline and details of exactly what happened and when are murky at best, but it wasn't long before his relationship with Mirov was public knowledge. By 1941, Prokofiev had left Lena, moved in with Mira, and they were collaborating on operatic projects, including the libretto for War and Peace. So how did Prokofiev and Mira approach turning such a massive work into an opera that ultimately spans 13 scenes and takes about 230 minutes to perform? Well, to start with, Prokofiev and Mira did not structure the opera in such a way that every single character and every single plot point from the original source material needed to be included in the opera. Similar to Tchaikovsky's approach to Eugene Onegin, they assumed that audiences already knew the story and that they didn't need to have every aspect of the novel or narrative covered on the opera stage. They could pick and choose a specific narrative to focus on and frame the opera in a more intimate way, taking the audience on an emotional journey related to select characters. Instead of over 500 characters, the opera has approximately 70 which is, admittedly, still quite a large cast. And the most prominent characters are significantly pared down, really focusing on Pierre, Natasha, and André. And this approach was very much linked to compositional tendencies we see in Prokofiev's operatic output at large. He gravitated toward a realistic, lifelike sphere in the theatrical elements of an opera, and he liked to compose his vocal lines in such a way that was deeply inspired by the dialogue, reflecting the natural inflections of spoken language. 
He also tried very hard to capture qualities of the source material, such as tone and atmosphere in the orchestration. And he strived to create a balance between intimate moments and active flow of the drama. This tendency of striving for intimacy in opera sometimes got him in trouble with the rather over-the-top and flashy aesthetic of socialist realism, as he was very resistant to larger heroic structures or scenes. In the case of War and Peace, the inclusion of such scenes in the final version were added to appease the government, and not necessarily aligned with Prokofiev's operatic ideals. Generally speaking, scholars suggest that, at the end of it all, Prokofiev and Mira's original plan to stay true to specific events in Tolstoy's novel were completely undermined, and the focus on individual characters were also compromised. The opera took on a feeling of a propaganda piece with the addition of a cult-like leader character, who is definitely an exaggerated and elaborated version of any such character in Tolstoy's original. We'll come back to that in a moment. So Prokofiev and Mira created an original draft of the opera in 11 scenes broken into two parts, part one being peace and part two being war, all focusing on the characters of Natasha, Pierre, André, and to a small extent, Anatole. In 1942, it was submitted to the Soviet Union's Committee on the Arts, which returned the score to Prokofiev with one overall directive for changes. They wanted part two, the war scenes, to be more patriotic and more heroic in emphasis. Desperately wanting the opera to make it to the stage, Prokofiev added marches, choruses, and expanded part two in a way that he hoped would appease the committee. He even added an epigraph to the opera with text overtly glorifying how the Russian people were able to defy their enemies. Revisions continued, and as an example of the kind of back and forth involved, one letter from the ministry to Prokofiev said this. Scene 8 has a good beginning. Procession of the Russian troops, good. The chorus, the Cossack song, all good. But too many conversations. The Russian simple people are represented as colorful but simpletons. Where is that wonderful people Kutuzov is talking about? To show the unity of the Russian people, a good theme sung by André can be used as a victory theme, and a broad vocal episode is needed for Kutuzov. Scene 9 in Moscow is no good except for three moments, the Mad Men, the final song, etc., and we suggest including a procession of Napoleon, even though this is not in Tolstoy. This demands big symphonic development here. And scene 11 should just be the tying of loose ends. Alexander Nevsky-like music is needed. Thus, scenes 9 and 11 have to be thoroughly reworked. And for the record, this is a translation that comes from a wonderful lecture on the opera by Marina Frolova-Walker, a visiting professor of Russian music at Gresham College in 2019. Her lecture was an absolutely invaluable part of the research behind this episode. You can imagine just from hearing the contents of this letter how frustrating it must have been for Prokofiev to have his opera picked apart and to have a political body clearly motivated by completely different incentives than what was most important to him, the musical integrity of the work, criticizing and dictating changes that must be made. Let's start at the beginning of the opera and explore a variety of moments throughout the work that demonstrate Prokofiev's operatic style we'll also see these two different musical inclinations that needed to coexist in order for the work to make it to the stage, 
Prokofiev's desire for an intimate relationship-driven opera versus the government's desire for patriotic heroics. If we look at the beginning of the opera, the opening scene, we are immediately drawn into the lyrical, intimate world of Natasha, with a chamber-like orchestration that immediately draws us into her personal realm. This scene takes place at Count Rostov's estate. It is after dark and Natasha cannot sleep, so she goes to her window and reflects on the beauty of the moonlight and the garden below. Andre, who is a guest there, also happens to be looking out toward the garden from another part of the house, and while initially saddened by the loss of his wife, he sees Natasha from afar and is instantly attracted to her. And from this very first scene, Prokofiev sets up a technique of using melodies associated with particular characters almost as leitmotif, moving them around the orchestra almost like an omniscient narrator. The music is incredibly lyrical, and even though they have not officially met yet, the melody originally associated with Natasha is picked up later and sung by Andre, symbolically linking these two characters together.
The next scene in the final version is one inserted by Prokofiev to try and appease the censors. A ball scene which features a quintessentially Russian-sounding dance, drawing on the modal folk-like elements but casting them within a glittering aristocratic atmosphere. And while this scene was not part of Prokofiev's original plan for the work, it does help to introduce some of the main characters as it features Natasha and Andre meeting and interacting for the first time both clearly enamored with one another, and it also introduces the character of Pierre and his future wife, Helene. the final version, which was originally scene two in Prokofiev's original draft, Natasha and Andre are now engaged, but realistically speaking, they hardly know each other. And as Natasha will come to learn, Andre's family is not incredibly fond of the match. Even though Andre is not at home, Natasha visits the Bolkonsky estate and sings of her longing to see Andre, hoping that maybe today will be the day that he is there. that follow in the rest of part one, the peaceful half of the opera, Natasha ends up meeting Anatole, largely encouraged by Helene. The two fall for each other, they plan to elope, but they are caught. It is revealed that Anatole is actually married, so Natasha has been deceived, and Pierre tells the devastated Natasha that he will try to get Andre to forgive her. Pierre confronts Anatole and demands that he leaves Moscow, and the act ends with a declaration that Napoleon's army has crossed into Russia. So while part one of the opera tends to focus on the personal, intimate side of the story with lyrical music, part two shifts gears rather dramatically with more grandiose musical language, and the plot focusing on the war side of the story. And this is where Prokofiev needed to make several changes to appease the censors. Now, if we look at the war scenes in Prokofiev's original version, he used the same compositional approach as in part one, just with more characters. He was focused on the individuals and their relationships with one another and their personal journey within this larger historical moment. 
And as Prokofiev scholar Marina Frolova Walker describes, this compositional approach maps very well to the original source material. For Tolstoy, history was not made in grand events or a small group of great leaders, but history is moved by hundreds of random happenings involving random people, and so history progresses in these little personal portraits. And Prokofiev infused these scenes with folk-like soldier songs to kind of draw the web of characters together with a kind of authentic feeling atmosphere. So the war scenes were said by the government to have too much conversation, too much dialogue, and a focus on individual persons, with not enough drama, heroics, or patriotic music, and missing a strong leader. In Prokofiev's original version, modeled on the source material, a strong leader character didn't really exist. General Kutuzov, who became that cult-like leader in the revised and final version of the opera, didn't really exist in that kind of form in the original. In the directives for revisions from the Ministry of Culture, it was suggested that General Kutuzov needed a broad vocal episode, and he needed this to establish him as a strong leader worthy of celebrating by the end of the opera. Glorifying a leader for their military success was something that helped further the goals of the socialist realist aesthetic. And it was a strategy that Russia had used in crafting their own political narrative in the wake of World War II, crediting Stalin with being the great leader who defeated the Nazis. So to boost this character's presence and persona within the opera, Prokofiev actually gave him a large aria in the revised version, inserting it into scene 10. In the story, this moment coincides with a crucial military decision. Napoleon is advancing against Moscow, but if the Russians defend Moscow to the end, they risk losing it entirely. If they retreat, Kutuzov believes there is hope of ultimate success. It's a controversial decision, but one that pays off in the end, leading Russia to victory. In Prokofiev's original version, Kutuzov was mainly portrayed as just one of the soldiers, one of the guys, not given any great aria moment, participating in the dialogue and banter, and not portrayed as particularly brilliant, strategic, or powerful. So Prokofiev ended up writing this extended scene for Kutuzov, and it took him a long time to write it. It was not an easy addition. To try and transform the character into this great leader that the ministry wanted. As we listen, at the beginning of this scene, you will hear that all of the military generals are gathered to discuss strategy, and there is clearly disagreement about what to do next. Should they meet the French head-on and suffer losses, but possibly win, and possibly inflict even greater loss on their enemy troops? Or should they sacrifice Moscow, save as many of their own troops as possible, so they can hit the French even harder and ultimately defeat them? This argument carries on until one general lays out their conflicting options and sings, the ultimate decision is for our commander-in-chief. The music comes to an abrupt and grave stop, and all eyes turn to General Kutuzov. 
With an aura of authority, he sings of how the decision he makes will affect all of Russia's fate. The melody is foreboding and slow to begin, and a march-like rhythm emerges as he explains how they can use the abandonment of Moscow as a way to lay a trap for their enemies. When he sings of victory, bright major harmonies stand out against what was, for the most part, quite foreboding music up to that point. Once the decision is made, we hear a chorus of soldiers merrily marching off, praising Kutuzov's leadership. And following this, you will get into the real meat of the aria, where Kutuzov reflects on his decision. The orchestra brings you into this moment with a dark but lyrical opening that ends in dramatic tremolos, and then transitions into a more hymn-like melody in which Kutuzov sings passionately about defending Mother Russia. This hymn-like melody will, of course, return at the end of the opera when the Russians are victorious as a celebratory chorus. His aria continues as he sings of the resilience of the Russian people, how Moscow will be eventually restored, and how they will all be victorious. The melody is commanding, and it is certainly a strong moment for the leader to show confidence, wisdom, passion, determination, all the qualities that portray him as a force behind the victory. So to hear how all of this unfolds, here is Kutuzov's big aria scene, beginning with some of that preamble of the generals, as I described. Кроме того, надо учесть наши потери в людях. Обы неприятеля, не меньше нашей. Если решено дать сражение, то выгоните неприятелю навстречу. А Россия не Москва. Итак, господа, стало быть мне платить за перебитые горшки. Ради победы мы до 
Рязанскую дорогу. Вы свободны, господа. Когда же, когда же решилась эта страшная тела?
коварный враг вступить на нашу землю, и скоро он восплачет. Любовь к отечеству и храбрость войска и молитвы наши нам дадут победу. Боях свободу отстоит народ. Отечеству мы вернем спокойствие и мир другим народам. Now, before we look at the end of the opera, there is one more scene in which Prokofiev got to bring back a few moments of that intimate personal touch. And this is when Natasha and André meet again. This is in scene 12. André is badly wounded, and Natasha, who is among the evacuees from Moscow, learns that André is somewhere close by. She finds him and apologizes for betraying him. Andre confesses that he still loves her, and they sing happily of their dreams of a future together. But all of this happens just moments before Andre dies. And how Prokofiev portrays this moment musically is really effective. Their music is lyrical and romantic as they reflect on when they first met, their joy of being reunited, but tinged with minor harmonies, and their melodies sort of circle around each other, never really landing in unison. The waltz theme from earlier in the opera when they first met is recalled, but there is also this pulsing in the orchestra and chorus, suggesting André's heartbeat, and it slowly fades as he fades from life to death. Oh, yeah. 
Здравствуйте по душе, по всей душе. Все тянется, тянется, воздвигается.
In the final scene, the French are leading a group of Russian prisoners through the snow, and among them is Pierre, who learns from a friend that André has died, but Natasha is still alive. The Russian prisoners are rescued, and it is clear that Russia has finally emerged victorious over the French. The opera, in its final version, ends with a celebratory finale, bringing back the melody from Kutuzov's aria. Despite its tumultuous journey from the page to the stage, War and Peace remains a well-loved opera, and within it, one can find both the intimate, the lyrical, and the romantic, all connecting us to personal journeys of specific characters, as well as large-scale dramatic battle scenes, heroic declarations, and chorus numbers that celebrate the triumph of a people over their enemies on a very grand scale both a rousing and touching night at the opera, to be sure. Does the work stand as an example of extreme interference from a political body into the artistic choices in the creation of an opera? Most certainly. And without a doubt, the final version reflects the socialist realism ideals of the time. Was the final version what Prokofiev ultimately wanted or intended? Mm, probably not. But did the work get performed and actually reach the public? Yes, which is a triumph unto itself, given how easily and probably tempting at times it could have been for Prokofiev to simply abandon the project or refuse to make the changes required. But despite the changes he was forced to make, his brilliance as an opera composer is still very evident. You hear it in the atmospheric music he pairs so perfectly with each scene, from the tranquil garden at night in the opening scene, to music fit for battle, to Natasha's spinning vocal lines, the lilting waltz scene, 
music of forgiveness and reconciliation when Natasha and Andre meet again, and yes, even the music crafted to give General Kutuzov more authority and gravitas, or the patriotic hymn-like sections to appease the authorities. So while Prokofiev may seem like a stylistic enigma on the surface when you first encounter his music, hopefully this exploration into the political backdrop and compositional history of War and Peace provides some greater context and appreciation for a composer who attempted to realize his operatic ideals under the watchful eye and revisionist arm of a controlling political regime. That was Guild Lecturer and my podcast co-host, Dr. Naomi Baratera, guiding us through opera in the Soviet era. If you'd like to learn more and keep up with all things opera, make sure to follow the Metropolitan Opera Guild, Opera News, and the Metropolitan Opera on all your favorite social media platforms. I'm your host, Stuart Holt, and thanks so much for listening.